This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Hospira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, Dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing healthcare costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Judith Jacoby, PharmD, FCCM, to discuss her article published in Critical Care Medicine, Guidelines for the Use of an Insulin Infusion for the Management of Hyperglycemia in the Critically Ill Patients. Dr. Jacoby is a critical care pharmacist specialist at Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. She's also past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Jacoby, thanks for joining us today. Very happy to be here. So I guess the first thing that I'd like to say is that, you know, there are articles that show up in the journal that you read and you say, this is interesting and, and this is kind of eclectic and, and this is something that will be neat on the horizon. But the article that you're the lead author on was a big project. Uh, it was uh, a product of the society. Am I correct about that? Correct. I had a team of uh, clinicians, uh, multi-professional, very interested in the role of insulin therapy for critically ill patients who dedicated a lot of time to this project over several years. This is probably a paper that, um, you know, as I'm reading it now, I need to make sure that all of our residents and fellows get this. So if you're listening to the podcast, this is clearly one of the manuscripts that you want to read. Um, don't just read the abstract. There's just a tremendous amount of information that we're going to go through today and um, uh, really will provide a lot of granularity and explanation as to why the recommendations uh, are what they are. I guess the first question that I'd like to ask and I'm kind of curious about is, is that, I've reviewed a lot of manuscripts for a lot of professional meetings for trauma and and critical care, and people have been talking about this for years, but here we are, 2012, and about 10 years later, now we have uh, a recommendation from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Uh, Why all the time? Why the delay in in getting a a formalized guideline out? An evidence-based guideline, you have to have enough evidence, and obviously the original Vandenberg studies led us to become very interested in the role of or potential role of intensive insulin therapy and the notion of tight glycemic control as an endpoint. But the literature was very limited in the early years and it became apparent that although we originally thought we could write a glycemic control guideline, Initially, there just wasn't adequate information. And so we thought that the NICE sugar study would help to clarify some of the issues because it would be a a multi-center, very large study. It left us really with almost as many questions as we started with. And so it became apparent that the data were not robust enough to really define optimal glycemic control, that it really came down to the fact that there are patients we will be using insulin infusions for, and 
we still have questions on the endpoint, but regardless of the endpoint, we have to be able to use that therapy safely. And there are a lot of ways that insulin as an infusion can have problems in the safety arena that really could potentially explain why clinical trials weren't able to confirm a benefit, if there is one, with intensive insulin therapy. I have to admit, I really love that as an answer, and and because what's what's great about that as an answer is, and I'm sure you you're living this space more than I do, but you see people get on their chairs and argue about things at various meetings and, and pound their their fists on a desk. This is the way it should be done, and you know, teaching with residents and students and fellows, uh, what I would refer to as the wizards of smarts. Um, you know, a lot of our professional organizations that we have a lot of respect for, SCCM, American College of Chest Physicians, the American College of Endocrinologists, they've been rather slow and deliberate in, in coming out with a written evidence-based guideline. I would suspect for similar reasons that you mentioned is that, you know, one or two papers are interesting, but to really make a, a solid evaluation of the literature, you need to collect a significant amount of evidence. And in the area of insulin therapy, what we found looking at the evidence is that uh, it was, in some cases, heterogeneous populations with uh, very limited evaluation of endpoints and vastly different methodologies. And, uh, and so it was really some of those process issues uh, that we felt were major contributors to the inability to show a clear pattern of either benefit or risk, and uh, that that's why it was so important to address that. And if we can get past some of the, the process issues, it may be feasible to, to study this issue again and, and perhaps determine whether there is a, a patient outcome benefit. Uh, although I don't know that the, the financing will ever exist for that. Uh, but regardless, the practical issue is we use insulin infusion therapies, perhaps not as broadly as we thought we might or perhaps in some cases did at one time, uh, but that safety perspective remains essential. So I guess the question that everybody's dying to know the answer to is that the initial Vandenberg trials would say we wanted to keep it between 80 and 110, but that's not what um, the current state of the science is saying. Um, your group is recommending what? Well, our group is recommending, like the other guideline documents and, uh, for example, the American Diabetes Association has recommended that we ought to, at the very least, keep blood glucose less than 180 milligrams per deciliter or about uh, 10 uh, on the international units. Uh, but... Uh, our data, our meta-analysis suggested for the studies that we included that there still appeared to be a slight but significant uh, impact on patient outcomes, specifically mortality, uh, if blood glucoses are maintained 100 to 150. And so what we've suggested, and again, this is not strong data, so it's a suggestion, 
is that there may be a benefit to keeping blood glucose at 100 to 150 if it can be done safely. Uh, but certainly, blood glucoses ought to be maintained less than 180 milligrams per deciliter. That um, was, was surprising because there's been so much written lately about keeping blood sugar between 80 and 110, and, and so many people have gotten rather to be almost zealots uh, about that. You actually, it was interesting too, is, is how you defined hypoglycemia. Um, you defined hypoglycemia different than some of the, the more landmark studies. One of the things uh, that we found is a very important consideration, uh, and again, the data are still evolving, but it's very apparent that if patients have low blood sugars uh, frequently or to a severe extent, that it's associated with poorer outcomes. Now, it still may be that the sickest patients are the ones that have more frequent or more severe episodes of hypoglycemia, and, and that's why there may be a poor outcome. But it's clear that we cannot dismiss a, a, an iatrogenic complication like hypoglycemia. And so I, I, I think that our standards uh, have been raised a little bit to consider mild, moderate, and severe uh, as different categories. And, and it's, a, it's a spectrum uh, that uh, we don't entirely understand uh, that Clearly, if someone has repeated episodes of severe hypoglycemia, less than 40 milligrams per deciliter, uh, that that's very much associated with a poor outcome. And we don't know what strengthens that association. Is it the amount of time? Is it the number of episodes? Uh, a lot we don't know as yet. But that even more mild levels of hypoglycemia may impact cognitive outcomes, uh, something very difficult to quantitate and very complex. Uh, but if we're going to use this therapy, it's got to be in the safest possible fashion. And so we think the key is being able to identify those excursions because they are going to happen. We just have to find them quickly and address it appropriately. And the initial studies were looking at blood sugars that were, for hypoglycemia, they, they defined it as what? Blood sugars less than 45? Uh, usually around less than 40. So most of the reports only evaluated or reported the severe hypoglycemia. Uh, but uh, I, I think that that ignores the much more frequent problem of blood sugars between uh, 40 and 80, which also may be significant for some patients. In particular, for example, uh, a patient with a neurologic injury where, uh, again, the issue of, of hypoglycemia in an injured brain, uh, especially uh, the, the tissue glucose uh, concentration in a local area of injury is very complex. Yeah, but it does appear as we get more and more data that systemic hypoglycemia is clearly not good for the injured brain. Exactly where that critical point lies 
we don't know, and whether it's the absolute glucose or the change in glucose that's important, we don't know. Uh, but we have, again, suggested that for the neuropopulation uh, that we be even more compulsive about avoiding blood glucose less than 100. And the, the manuscript went in to talk about some of the variations in how we measure blood sugar, the different devices, the different reagents used, that there's significant variability, uh, which is fascinating to me because um, this is something we talk a lot about in our intensive care unit. And I recall an article that was in Mayo Clinic Proceedings where they did basically almost an entire volume dedicated to problems with point-of-care testing glucometers. So how we test it, whether it's a, a finger stick, venous sample, arterial sample, are all relevant in um, the point-of-care testing, and the actual device is only accurate to about 15%. Uh, yeah, not only was this a revelation as we got into it, it was actually a bit terrifying. <laughs> as a, a clinician, you know, I've taken care of patients. We've used meters for years, and it's convenient, but the idea that these were not developed for hospitalized patients and that there was a, really a fairly broad range of expected accuracy uh, such that, you know, a, a blood glucose that is measured at 70 could in reality be significantly lower than that and, and uh, or, you know, or you measure it at 50 and it could be significantly lower than that. Um, that degree of inaccuracy really was fairly startling to me and, uh, and I think we still are relying on devices uh, that um, may perform differently in the hands of different operators and, and, as you pointed out, depending upon the source of the blood. And so we do not advocate frequent finger stick testing for a patient with an insulin infusion in part because it's uh, fairly invasive for the patient, but clearly a patient who uh, is on vasopressors and has poor perfusion or who is edematous, uh, those finger stick values can deviate um, much more significantly from the laboratory control. And so uh, we suggest that blood be drawn through either a venous or an arterial sample and that it appears to be appropriate uh, with a trained operator uh, to use the meters uh, and get a reasonably reproducible and appropriate value. Uh, but it's something that's finally gotten the attention of the FDA to a greater extent, and I think we're going to see significant improvements in devices that are available for glucose management uh, and measurement in the ICU. Yeah, I want to spend a little more time on this point of terror, I think, as you would call it, um, because, you know, folks listening to the podcast, you know, clinicians of, of various stripes, uh, pharmacists, nurses, physicians, uh, physicians in training, um, but I, I want to actually read from the manuscript because this is something that's rather terrorizing. And it's reading right from the manuscript. It says, comparing data on specific meters may be confounded by lack of consensus on the limits of acceptable error between the Food and Drug Administration, which allows up to 20% error 
and the American Diabetes Association up to 5% error standards. Um, goes on, guidelines allow up to 15 milligrams per deciliter variants of blood sugar values below 75 and up to 20% of the laboratory analyzer value for blood glucose levels greater than 75 milligrams per deciliter. So, you know, going through, when we think about the, you know, the Vandenberg trial of, of 80 to 110, um, 20% vary. I mean, you could be sitting there thinking you have a blood sugar of 80 and you really have a blood sugar sitting down in the 60s. Uh, which I, I agree is is kind of terrorizing. Um, I, I've seen this written in another uh, manuscript though, is that we're taking these glucometers, which are really at home uh, point of care testing, and, and bring them into the intensive care unit and thinking that they have the precision of our oximeters, which is uh, again rather alarming. They're not what we think they are. And uh, you go on to talk about some of the things that uh, will degrade the reliability of the glucometers even further. And some of these are, I guess, typically common for people in the intensive care units. Um, the high oxygen tension environments with a PO2 greater than 100 uh, can falsely lower blood glucose readers, excuse me, glucometers, uh, anemia, uh, and medications such as vitamin C, Tylenol, dopamine, mannitol, and laboratory issues such as like high uremic a- or uric acids and bilirubins. And so these are relatively common medications and, and common conditions for critically ill patients, and, and it degrades that value even further. I think the anemia issue is among the most significant, and certainly there are uh, a couple of manufacturers that have m- made corrections to their devices so that they account for a low hemoglobin, but it's by no means universal among all the manufacturers. You know, that's uh, unfortunately, you know, the world we live in in terms of accepting low hemoglobin and hematocrit patients uh, in the interest of avoiding transfusion. And uh, so in any given patient, the degree of that interference uh, uh, is potentially predictable, and there uh, is some research that suggested uh, you can apply a little formula and correct the result. Uh, but I think uh, industry response uh, to the needs of critical care clinicians would be to make sure that certainly for something common like anemia, that that would be accounted for with the meters. Uh, and uh, luckily for most of the drug interactions, uh, they are relatively minor in in degree of how much they influence the, the glucose. But uh, certainly some of them are very significant in the case of uh, some of the uh, uh, alternate sugar compounds that can be found in uh, peritoneal dialysis solutions and some of the IVIG products that you just absolutely cannot use a meter in those patients because the degree of, of error is so great. You've mentioned this already, but in, you know to expand on it, uh, we can take blood for glucose measurement from arterial and venous sources as well as finger sticks. Uh, and a patient who is in shock or on vasopressors, obviously you've pointed out that uh, getting a finger stick is, is less than appropriate. Um, in your experience and in your review for this manuscript, 
Do most uh, intensive care uh, units or most major centers, have they standardized the approach of where we're getting the blood from? I mean, or is it really up to the discretion of the nurse or this patient has a central venous catheter and this patient has an art line and therefore today I'll use an art line and tomorrow I'll use a venous sample and the day after that I'll use a finger stick? Honestly, I can't speak for the majority of ICUs in their practice, but I have to tell you that in my intensive care units, uh, we have not standardized uh, the uh, optimal site for uh, blood acquisition. And so it does vary uh, probably from nurse to nurse and shift to shift and obviously develop, depending on what access the patient has at any point in time. Um, and there is variability whether you measure an arterial sample or a venous sample. Most of that is is probably small enough that it isn't uh, as problematic, but certainly it's one of the many factors that plays into the, perhaps a factor that plays into the inability to certainly demonstrate that a very tight level of glycemic control uh, was consistently better than looser degrees of control. Uh, because as the studies got bigger or in different settings, there was more and more use of meters, where in the Vandenberg study, of course, they were using a highly reliable blood gas analyzer. What is the role of, of subcutaneous insulin in, a, in an attempt to attain blood glucose control in the intensive care unit? You know, there really is a, a very limited amount of literature in the area of sub-Q insulin specifically for ICU patients. Uh, and I was able to find one abstract suggesting that uh, long-acting insulin, uh, particularly the glargine insulin, was not well absorbed in patients who were edematous, but it was a, a paper I could uh, never get the whole document on the, that pharmacokinetic study. Certainly our experience with low molecular weight heparin compounds as sub-Q delivery drugs, uh, they are not as well absorbed in patients who are on vasopressors and edematous. So I, I kind of extrapolate concern to the, in particular, the long-acting insulin products in terms of reliability of absorption for those sickest patients. And uh, so there, there are some uh, very basic concerns. Um, in addition, it's, it's, you know, once we've delivered a long-acting insulin, it's in there, and uh, certainly that could pose a risk for an unstable patient uh, in terms of a, a greater chance of hypoglycemia. Uh, and so for a lot of reasons, uh, I think most of us as clinicians will avoid uh, certainly long-acting insulin until we're sure that there's a certain amount of hemodynamic stability and probably therapeutic stability. But we do have some information from uh, James Crinsley and his colleagues at the uh, Sanford Medical Center where their insulin management includes uh, both subcutaneous and intravenous insulin. There is, although not as well studied specifically, I think some potential for frequent doses of uh, rapid-acting insulin 
Uh, and I believe their protocol now uses every three-hour insulin uh, to uh, serve as a kind of an intermediate step uh, for some patients, uh, especially where our target is just to keep the blood glucose less than 180. And then if you recognize that that's not adequate, then, you know, you can consider an insulin infusion or perhaps if they're stable adding long-acting insulin. Uh, but truly, our guideline really kind of focused on IV intravenous insulin as the starting point and considered sub-Q more as that transition uh, opportunity off of the intravenous insulin. And uh, there are obviously uh, patients, uh, diabetic patients, uh, insulin-dependent patients, uh, who will need that transition to, uh, in many cases, a basal bolus insulin uh, to maintain their glycemic control beyond the intravenous insulin. What is your recommendation for our, our, our colleagues that run pediatric intensive care units? Should we be targeting, I, I take care of children as well, should I be working to keep their blood sugars less than 150? So, uh, again, pediatrics uh, are a very unique population, and uh, we had several uh, pediatric uh, critical care specialists uh, participating in uh, this guideline. And uh, I think it, although some of the early data uh, are beginning to identify what needs to happen uh, for the glycemic management of pediatric patients, uh, that I, I think we really don't have the, the type of outcomes data that we really need uh, to make any specific statement for pediatric patients. Uh, what's interesting is uh, they've been able to study and use subcutaneous uh, implanted uh, glucose sensors in some pediatric populations and have uh, demonstrated the ability to use insulin infusion therapy uh, to achieve uh, glucose endpoints and, and do that safely. Uh, but how that impacts patient outcome, uh, we don't know at this point as yet. So what should be the take-home point for our providers and, and the membership of SCCM um, regarding the outcomes of, of this uh, analysis and manuscript? So what we really like clinicians to pay attention to are several components of what we think is important for safe insulin use. And the number one thing being to really assess the state of uh, glycemic control uh, for patients and whether the protocol that is in place is truly accomplishing what you set out to accomplish in terms of number one, safety, and number two, whatever glycemic goals are set for that population or for your ICU. And many hospitals instituted insulin infusion protocols, uh, and I'm not convinced that those have been adequately assessed for safety and effectiveness. So the number one thing is a reliable protocol. 
the evidence suggests that uh, some of the computerized protocols that use algebraic approaches to calculate an insulin infusion rate are among the safest. And you can use it as a computer or you can do it as a manual calculation. And, and the Atlanta Hospital Group uh, shares their table format uh, for the algebraic approach to, uh, to calculating insulin doses on their website. It may be that other protocols uh, are similarly safe and effective, but certainly that approach has been uh, well published and demonstrated to be safe uh, uh, and uh, able to achieve the glycemic target that it's uh, set for. Um, so I think knowing your protocol and its uh, outcomes, uh, making sure if it's not optimal that you uh, change, being attentive to how you're using meters and uh, training individuals to use the devices and uh, how you're obtaining blood is important. And, uh, and then being attentive when you do have episodes of hypoglycemia, how it's being recognized, that it's being recognized hopefully in a timely fashion. And um, I'd like to say we know how best to treat hypoglycemia. I don't think we have that answer as yet. Uh, but uh, making sure that patients are not over-treated for hypoglycemia may be important. Uh, one of the uh, ongoing areas of research is in glucose variability, that patients who have big fluctuations in blood sugar, that that alone may be detrimental for outcome. And so perhaps taking a more modest approach uh, to glucose replacement, something short of a half an amp or the whole amp of 50% dextrose um, uh, has been suggested, but again, not tested uh, extensively. So... Um, just being cognizant of the fact that it could be detrimental to overtreat uh, would be another important consideration. And for the folks listening, you know, in the manuscript on the discussion on the treatment of hypoglycemia, uh, you and your co-authors provide several uh, methods and, and formulas uh, to, uh, I want to say, you know, uh, treat the hypoglycemia, but treat it with uh, elegance and, and uh, with precision rather than just slamming a couple amps of D50 on somebody. And, uh, you know, I think we've learned a little bit about the treatment of hypoglycemia from the outpatient world where, you know, it, it, it patients uh, who have the ability to, to drink a little bit of juice or, or something, um, you know, usually bounce back pretty quickly, um, obviously not always. The important consideration with uh, an insulin infusion is, is that, uh, when we have a hypoglycemic episode, certainly to, to at least temporarily stop the insulin therapy is an important consideration. Uh, but where we're monitoring the blood glucose frequency, frequently, if we over-treat and create a hyper, a temporary hyperglycemia, we have the risk of over-treating with insulin 
you know, perpetuating the problem and, and some of these uh, traumatic swings in, in glucose. And so I can't say that these approaches to calculate a dose of insulin or a dose of dextrose, rather, uh, based on an algebraic formula, I can't say that those have been tested for patient outcome impact. But you're right, it does give an elegant way, objective way, uh, to calculate a dose of uh, 50% dextrose or perhaps even better to use aliquots of less concentrated dextrose, uh, which seems to avoid over-treating uh, as well, and and then reevaluate the blood glucose uh, I, I, frequently enough that you're assured that you have uh, treated that hypoglycemic episode. Well, we've been discussing uh, the issue of hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia with uh, Dr. Judith Jacoby, PharmD, who is the past president of Society of Critical Care Medicine from the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital, and she is the lead author on a, a consensus guideline entitled Guidelines for the Use of an Insulin Infusion for the Management of Hyperglycemia in Critically Ill Patients. Folks, this is one that you definitely want to get. This is one you definitely want to read. This is um, impactful to all of our practices daily. Uh, there are over 200 references. If you're kind of a critical care geek like myself, uh, you'll find this very helpful. And just the tables and the odds ratios that are presented with it uh, are significant. And plus, it goes into all the detail and all the explanations about how uh, these thought leaders in critical care came up with these recommendations. And you actually get the evidence graded. And unfortunately, we don't have great evidence. But clearly, this is one that you want to get for your files and, and make a good read of. Dr. Jacoby, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about this project and uh, uh, to recognize uh, the contributions of the committee members uh, in helping to create uh, this document. We do hope that people find it useful. And like any guideline, where there are ongoing questions, hope clinicians and researchers will challenge us and, and help us find the answers to many of these ongoing questions. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Hospira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the chief medical officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare 
at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.